Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So what follows is an interview I did with Bernie Sanders, which was a massive honor. The guy obviously has had a huge impact, not just on the US left, but I would say the left globally as well. So I did this event in Oxford live. It was with Guardian Live, who do this incredible series of talks online, people in conversation with just incredible figures. Uh, Do check them out. You can check out Guardian Live on YouTube, Instagram. Also check out the link I've put in the bio uh, for this. But I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments. Here he is, the great man himself, Bernie Sanders. Hello, 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 and welcome to this Guardian event live with me, Owen Jones. Now, for many of us, tonight is a bit like watching the Beatles live. (laughs) Bernie Sanders, and crucially, the movement around him, not me, us, of course, as his slogan goes, transformed US politics. Back in 2016, a cosy corporate consensus was blown apart. It was supposed to be a coronation for the most powerful political family in the United States. But a generation of younger people had a slightly different idea. They had been raised to believe that there was no alternative to free market capitalism. But then they heard another message, that a different United States, one run in the interests of the people, not elites, could be built. The impact of that movement will be felt for decades to come. And I firmly believe that its greatest achievements are still to come. Now, he's here to talk about his new book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. For his opening address, please give the applause he deserves for Senator Bernie Sanders. Thank you very much. Bernie, I just want to start this book. I read it in one sitting. Brilliant book. Now, the title, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. When I was studying here in the city a while ago now, one of the things we studied was this idea of US exceptionalism. And part of that was, unlike most Western nations, the US has never had a social democratic or democratic socialist party of government. You've had the Democrats and the Republicans, who are obviously both overtly pro-capitalist parties. I'm just interested in why you think that's the case. Why the US, unlike Britain or other Western countries? Well, in the book, we don't go into that issue at length, but we do mention it. And what everybody here should know that uh, pre-World War I, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a a fairly strong and growing uh, socialist movement in America. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, socialists who were elected to the New York State Assembly were simply not seated. They weren't seated. They weren't allowed to come in. Also, when World War I came, the socialists, by and large, opposed America's entry into the war for good and right reasons. 
um, and the leader of the Socialist Party was a wonderful man who I suspect many of you have not heard of. His name was Eugene Victor Debs. You think people here? I, I doubt that people are familiar I with him. some people. He was, a, right. he was a huge figure, obviously. And, and Debs was an extraordinary man. He, was, he, he had worked, he was a railroad worker, worked on the railroads, um, became involved in the union, helped consolidate a number of unions to create the American Railway Union, led a major strike, railway strike, uh, became, was arrested for his strike activities while he was in jail. He read Karl Marx, came out a socialist. Not a good idea to put him in jail. Uh, and, and he helped develop the Socialist Party. Um, and he ran for president uh, on, I believe, five occasions. And he was arrested for his opposition to World War I for a speech that he gave. He was in a federal penitentiary for three years. He ran for president in jail and got over a million votes. So he was uh, an extraordinary man. But my point is that the Socialist Party at that period was broken by the government, that's mm -hmm. all. They were not, their publications were not allowed to use the US mail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Their offices were raided, their leaders were arrested. And, uh, and then we had McCarthyism in the 1950s, which is a vicious effort against the entire left in America. Well, those are some of the reasons why we have not had much of a, a left wing. Now, um, there's this quote, there's Peter Mandelson, I'm sure you've heard of, one of the founders of New Labour, who said, we're perfectly relaxed about people being filthy rich. Now, in your book, you talk about billionaires as both a threat to democracy, but also to a sustainable, just economic system, which is very much a counter-argument to the likes of Peter Mandelson. I just wonder, why are they a threat? Why is the existence of billionaires a threat to democracy? And how do we abolish them, which is what you talk about? Well, I, I've given you some examples. I mean, you think, you know, billionaires don't take their money and put it in underneath the mattress. They use it to expand their wealth and their power. And the point that I want to make is very often these, the faces of these guys are their nice guys. They contribute to charity and to the local art museum, and they're just really sweet guys. They are not. They really are not. Now, uh, I'll give you just two examples. Jeff Bezos is one of the three richest guys in America, the head of Amazon, of course. And workers in Amazon have terrible working conditions, here in the UK as well. Uh, and they formed a union. And Bezos spent millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to, is spending, as we speak, trying to defeat union organizing efforts. With the one victory they won in Staten Island, New York, he's appealing it and appealing it and appealing it. So here's a guy worth well over $100 billion, just going nuts about trying to stop a union in a company that has massive turnovers because they really work people to death. I mean, they really work people, people quit, they bring in new people. You got Starbucks, you're familiar with Starbucks. Starbucks is owned by a guy named Howard Schultz, who is not quite Bezos, he's uh, only worth $4 billion, a rather poor billionaire. But we have seen all over America now in 200 shops and more, people organizing unions. You know what Schultz is doing? Everything he can, illegally. Our National Labor Relations Board pointed out I think well over 50 examples of illegal behavior on the part of the billionaire. These are not nice guys. They want it all. That is the point. I don't know, I, you know, I'm not a psychoanalyst, and I can't tell you what's in their minds. But somehow or another, they think that five billion is not enough, 10 billion, 20 billion, 50 billion is not enough. They want it all. And what's going on, and we don't talk about this at all, there is class warfare going on in America. 
And in the book, we talk about a RAND Corporation study. And RAND Corporation is not, trust me, a left-wing organization. And they talk about over the last 50 years, turns out there has been a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. Class warfare is going on. The wrong side is winning. And we have got to stop them. One of the, I think, really interesting points you made in this book, which is actually quite a challenging point to many of us on the left, is that we, we get bogged down with, I suppose, demonising, I mean, I'm not saying these are good guys, uh, but, you know, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, because what it does is it deflects from talking about the system. It becomes like pantomime, though I hope Elon Musk isn't behind us. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested, because often we do that, because I suppose we're trying to give a human face to a system so you can make it tangible. So I'm just interested in, you know, rather than, because you don't want us to get bogged down because it deflects from, it's a system, not here's some bad individuals, and if we just replace it with good ones... You got it. That's, that's exactly the right point. So, I mean, we make that clear in the book. This is not, you know, I personally hate these guys. It, it, it's not that... Well, I may, but that's not the point. It is... Owen is exactly right. What we're talking about is a system. And we have to ask ourselves, look, in my view, some may disagree. You know, somebody starts a business. They make a lot of money. You know, they're successful. They're innovative. They make a lot of money. Does anyone stay up nights worrying that they make a lot of money? They become rich? No, I don't. But the question is, how much do you need? All right? Do you really need billions of dollars in order, you know, take care of your families for, you know, 500 years? You don't need that much money. And I'll tell you something else that bothers me. It's not only the power that these billionaires have economically and politically, it's culturally as well. I want to see, and you know, maybe I'm old-fashioned in this regard, as somebody who has seven grandchildren, I want to see our kids aspire to be great scientists, to be great teachers, to do whatever work they do. You want to work for the Postal Service? Be a great Postal Service worker. Be a great janitor, whatever it may be. I think we have got to deal with this worship of billionaires. And I think we have to create a culture which says, no, it is not Wall Street speculators who deserve to be worshipped. It is doctors and nurses and teachers and people who do good, important work for humanity. So there's a cultural aspect to this that concerns me as well. On healthcare, you spoke there quite rightly at, at length, it should be a basic human fundamental right to have access to universal healthcare. And the United States is unique amongst those so-called industrialised nations for not having that. And I'm just interested in your theory about what, what possibly happened there. What's, is this testament to what you talk about, uber-capitalism that strengthened the United States? But given lots, a range of capitalist states with different forms of capitalism manage this, what on earth happened, do you think, in the United States? I mean, that's a great question. I can't give you... I, I don't know the exact answer. I will simply tell you this, that in America... These large corporations have enormous political power, mm -hmm. all right? So you have insurance companies that make billions and billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars every year, pay their CEOs just extraordinary compensation <laughs> packages uh, and have all kinds of lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Now, when you ask me, if you were to ask me why we pay in America the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs, it has a lot to do with the fact that the pharmaceutical industry puts zillions of dollars into campaign contributions. And in a Congress which has 100 members of the Senate, 435 members in the House, 535 members of Congress, do you know how many well-paid lobbyists there are 
in Washington, D.C. for those 535? Take a wild and crazy guess. How many lobbyists per? Yeah, per, like, whatever you want to do it. A hundred, I don't know. A hundred. Per, 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 per. No, well, it's, okay. <laughs> it is, <laughs> I was trying to there are 1,700. Okay. It's three lobbyists wow. for every member of Congress. And they are former leaders of the Democratic Party, wow. the former leaders of the Republican Party, all right? That is power. Mm. Then you add that to campaign contributions, then you add that to all the money they put on TV ads. So if you wanted to stand up, you're running for office. Mm. You want to say, I'm going to vote, I'm going to do everything I can to lower the cost of prescription drugs. You're going to have the whole world converging mm. on you. You're going to have 30-second ads saying, he does not want innovation in drugs. He doesn't care about people who have Alzheimer's or cancer, because or cancer, mm -hmm. we in the drug industry, that's all we are looking forward to doing. So you're going to have to take on everybody. And that's the same thing. In terms of healthcare, I believe, you know, there are different systems around the world. You have, I think, the structure of a very good system. We've kind of looked to our neighbors north in Canada who also have a pretty good system. What we are fighting for is a Medicare for all single-payer mm -hmm. program. TV ads, you know, Bernie Sanders, this, that, they, they demonize what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. They lie about what you're trying to do. They have a lot of power and a lot of wealth. That's the, that's the impediment. That's the opposition we're running into. Which they encourage people to vote against their own rational economic interests. Absolutely. Bernie Sanders wants to take away the health insurance you have on your job. Ah, oh, they forgot to say that Bernie Sanders wants you to have comprehensive, complete health insurance at a lower cost. Somehow that doesn't get into the 30-second TV ad. Now, what's striking is when you're standing in front of people, you're on TV, you're at these rallies, you talk about the working class. Now, the standard American term thrown around by politicians is middle class, which is not used in the same way as it is in Britain. It's not the same. But, you know, that concept of a working class with shared collective interests is a, has been anathema to most US Absolutely. political discourse. Do you think that's changing? Is class... Po because what you did in your campaigns, it was class politics was at the root of what you yeah, were talking about. That's is it changing and why? What I think happened? it is. I think it is. I think it is changing. And I'll, I'll tell you how... Strange the situation is. This has a lot to do with corporate ownership of the media. It's not, it's not just politicians who don't even use the phrase working class. It is media. So you can watch television day after day. Nobody will use the word the working class. That is not a concept that is accepted by the media. And you will certainly, when you have three people who are more wealth than the bottom half of America, when you have a you know, few thousand people who have enormous economic power. You've got a ruling class, right? It's hard to deny. You have a ruling class. Those people have the power. That phrase is never used. So we live in a culture, in a society, where the concept of class division is not even, you know, forget what side you're on in that debate. Mm -hmm. We can't even appreciate and acknowledge the reality of class warfare. And I do. I go out of my way to speak about a working class which is being decimated in the United States. Uh, and you're quite right in saying there are not too many people uh, who do the same. I mean, in terms of the labor movement, it's quite interesting. There's been the rich history of union struggle in the United States. In the 1930s, more strike days were lost as a percentage in, in the US than in Britain at the time, for example. But you spoke about McCarthyism, and that was really used to kind of smash uh, the unions. You had the right to work uh, rules in lots of American states as well, which had a similar effect. So I'm just interested in how much you think 
that the breaking of the unions to a large degree was a precondition to the sort of hyper-capitalist society the U.S. became. Absolutely. Very good point, and I think it's absolutely accurate. Where is the opposition coming from? Mm. All right, if you have billionaires writing tax laws so that in America today, billionaires pay an effective tax rate lower than a nurse or a bus driver, if you have this massive consolidation, if you have a tax on our basic health care programs, as bad as they are, a tax trying to cut back even on them, where is the opposition? Where is the organized opposition? So if the organized opposition can only come from a united working class through their unions, and if you break those, you break the major source of opposition. Now, what I'm delighted to tell you, I really am, is that in the last several years, we have seen a significant increase in union organizing activities and in the number of strikes that workers are now undertaking. And I think what people are catching on to is that the system is not working for workers and they are going to have to fight back. And as soon as I get back, we'll be back within, you know, within a couple of weeks, we're gonna be introducing legislation to make it impossible for these large corporations to engage in the illegal anti-union activity, which they currently do. But the good news is that workers are beginning to stand up and fight back, and I am gonna do everything that I can to grow the union movement in our country. I, I thought really interesting and striking. A very, a very powerful example that I, th I know you've been involved with is the unionisation, for example, Starbucks workers. And I, I'm interested in that because I think there was a sense amongst many in the labour movement that's too hard to organise in a kind of precarious, hire-and-fire um, workforce. So I'm just interested about the significance of well, that because right. it's spreading like wildfire at the moment. Well, Starbucks. you're right. And in fact, you know where... And the same thing with Amazon. Mm. Do you know where the impetus came from? From an independent union. Because mm. the big unions are looking out there and they're really saying... You know, do we have the resources? Are we, this is such a tough fight, we got other things to do. But workers themselves at Amazon and at Starbucks, often young people, said, you know what? We're going to go, if we have to go it alone, we're going to go it alone. And the union that was formed at Amazon was an independent union. And that is what we're seeing at Amazon right now. It's a beautiful thing, because I've been uh, to a number of meetings with these Amazon workers. They're often young, they're people of color. Uh, and they are standing up and fighting back. And uh, I have invited the, uh, the CEO of Starbucks, Mr. Schultz, to come before uh, my committee to tell us why he thinks it's appropriate for a billionaire to engage in illegal anti-union activity. We will see if he comes. Uh, well, best of luck to him if he, if he does. Um, as a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. 
So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I thought, you know, you talk about economic rights in this book. I'm really interested in this because it strikes me as want to make a left-wing case for expanding personal freedom. Um, and I'm interested in that because I suppose, you know, Thatcherism and Reaganism promised people personal freedom. That was a whole shtick. Right. But in practice, delivered insecurity, and that's not freedom. So I'm just interested. Do you think the left missed a trick by not trying to reclaim personal freedom from the right? Because it strikes me that is what you're trying to do in this book, Parley. Exactly what we're trying to do. Look, and again, we go into this at a little bit of length in the book. In 1944, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was one of the great presidents in our history, gave what was called the State of the Union speech. That's what presidents do every year. And it was in 1944, in the midst of World War II, uh, and the speech never got a whole lot of attention. But this is what he said in the speech, which was extraordinarily radical uh, and courageous. He said, you know, in America, we are very proud that we have a whole lot of political rights. You know, came from way back when, when we took on the British. <laughs> we don't have to go into yeah. that. That's yeah. right. But anyway, we have a constitution, we have a bill of rights. In other words, you have the freedom to vote, you have freedom of religion, you have freedom of assembly, you have all kinds of freedoms that are guaranteed to you by the constitution. He said, that's great. I'm paraphrasing him, obviously. That's really great, we should be proud of that. But then he raises this question. He says, are you really free if you are deprived economically? Are you free if you're sleeping out on the streets? Well, that's an extreme case. I don't think you are. I don't think too many people think you're free. Are you free if you get sick and you can't afford to go to a doctor? Are you free if you're spending half of your income in housing and you have to work 50 or 60 hours a week? Are you free if you do not have a job that pays you a living wage? So what he was talking about and what we picked up in this book is my belief that economic rights are human rights. That it's not just the right to vote and the right to write a letter to the editor and freedom of expression. That human beings inherently are entitled to economic rights. You are entitled to quality health care as a human being. You're entitled to lifelong education. You're entitled to affordable housing. You're entitled to a decent job. So one of the great debates that we should be having is what are we entitled to as a human being? What the billionaires will tell us, this is a dog-eat-dog world. You want to have a good house? Hey, go out, make a lie, cheat, steal, do what you got to do. Make a lot of money, you can have a good house. You want your kid to have a good education? That's what you got to do. But you're entitled to nothing. And I have a very different point of view. I believe that economic rights are human rights. And here's the point. 
We are now not living in 1823 or 1923. We're living in 2023. As a world, at least among the industrialized world, we have accumulated huge amounts of wealth and we have extraordinary technology. So the question arises, if we use that wealth rationally and fairly, if we use that technology intelligently and fairly, could we in fact create a decent standard of living for all people? I think we can. I think we can. And I think that is the challenge that we face right now. And let me just say this, because it's not talked about too much. And in the book we go into it maybe even a little bit longer than we should. And that is this issue of life expectancy. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't talk about it, but what I think every human being wants, what do we want? We want to live long lives, we want to live happy lives, we want to live productive lives. Fair enough, is that a, that's kind of, you know, for the other things we want, but that's a pretty good start. In America today, A, our life expectancy is lower than many other countries, and in fact, above and beyond COVID going lower. Do you know what the gap is in life expectancy between, say, a working class person and a very rich person. Do you know what it is? It's over 10 years. Mm. Mm. I did a hearing a number of years ago called Poverty is as a Death Sentence. Mm. So when we talk about poverty, usually you say, well, I got a nice house. You know, you're poor, you have a crappy house. I got a good car, you got a bad car. I have nice clothes, you don't have nice clothes. Mm. That is not the basic issue. The basic issue is that people who are economically deprived, working class people, lower income people, many middle class people, are living under extraordinary stress. Mm -hmm. Stress. And every doctor in the world who has studied the issue will tell you stress kills, all right? So if you're a single mom trying to bring up a family and you can't afford healthcare and you can't afford rent and every single day is a struggle, and you're on pins and needles, you know? If you lose your job, what happens? That stress, year after year, eats away with the bodies of people. Poverty has a physiology. There's a physiology of poverty, and that physiology kills. So when we talk about creating a just society, it's a society that says, just because you're rich, you don't have the right to live 10, 15 years longer than low-income and working-class people. Well, there was a study a few years ago in this country which showed some parts of this country have a lower life expectancy than the West Bank, which I think really underlines what you're pointing to there. And one of the things I was really interested in the book was democratic workers' ownership. And I'm interested in that because after World War II, there was a programme of nationalisation in this country, which actually did lots to modernise a lot of industries. But for many workers, it was a case of an old corporate board was replaced by bureaucrats at the top. You didn't have involvement by workers in the decisions. So it became easy to privatise them because people felt they didn't have a stake in them. So I'm just interested in what you mean, you know, talk about democratic workers' ownership as a kind of alternative to that top-down form. I, mean, I think, especially with the explosion of new technology, we need to be doing some new thinking. And when I talk about the stress that people in America, and I'm sure in the UK, feel, there are millions and pe millions of people who wake up in the morning and they say, oh God, I gotta go to work, right? They really hate their jobs. Mm. And they're in their jobs for one reason and one reason alone, they need an income, they need a paycheck. In America, you need a paycheck plus some healthcare. 
That's why you got to work. So the challenge is, how can we change the nature of work in the 21st century? Do we still keep the same models that we had 200 years ago? And one of the areas I think that we've got to be moving forward on, and you know there are bits and pieces all over the world in that direction, is to say, fine, let us move toward worker ownership of the work that people are doing, all right? <laughs> what we have done in Vermont, uh, we have started a, a, a worker's ownership center, uh, and you're finding that, say, an older, some guy who started a company and had 20 or 30 employees, he's retiring, he is willing, you know, in many cases, to say, you guys can figure out the financing of it, we'll sell it to you, as a worker's call. And what we find is workers who work under worker ownership feel much, much better about their jobs. Why? Because they're not cogs in a machine. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to go to work and have no power. You check in, you have nothing to say about your job, you're at completely at the mercy of your employer. Nobody really wants that. They want to have input. Hey, we could do this better. So I think striving toward worker ownership, and we're seeing around the world. In Germany, I think large corporations have at least two employees or union representatives on boards. But we can do better. In other parts of the world, we're seeing workers owning what they do, and I think that's a direction we want to explore. You talk in the book about the four-day working week, and I'm slightly biased here because a close friend of mine runs the four-day week campaign in this country, and they've just done a pilot with tremendous results. All the companies involved reported you know, lower staff turnover, huge fall in sick pay, improved mental health, and more, more revenue. I mean, could this be one of the great causes of Absolutely. the left? Look, this is kind of a no-brainer. I made the point earlier that despite a huge increase in productivity, meaning that workers now are producing a lot more, who, is, who has benefited from that? Virtually all of the benefits of technology in the last 50 years have gone to the people on top. Well, we gotta stop that. So what we have got to say now is if you are producing 30% more than somebody did 20 years ago, there are two possibilities, it seems to me. One, you make more money because you're producing more, or two, more likely, you have a shorter work week. Mm -hmm. And as you indicate, what that study showed is that was this significant increase, increase in, in people's well-being. Uh, and, you know, I think that as technology develops, we should absolutely take a very hard look at a four-day work week. No question about it. I, I mentioned Not Me, Us, that slogan, which became a definitive slogan, I suppose, of your movement. So, I mean, because there'll be people here involved maybe in local campaigns and issues and all the rest of it. And I guess I'm interested in how do you think we can nurture those movements and move away from focus on individual leaders, as inspiring as they may well be? Right. Well, what not me, us means, you know, in America, you know, and I, more so he, than here, uh, it's the nature of our system is, you know, vote for me because I'm going to solve all the problems. I'm going to do this and that. Vote for me. And what we, I understand, and I think you understand, and most people understand, is especially when you are taking on an enormously powerful ruling class, that no real change ever takes place unless millions of people are standing up and demanding it. And we have seen that in recent years in terms of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, et cetera, and the labor, his, labor history of America. It only takes place, change only takes place when people stand up and fight for it. 
So what we wanted to make it clear is that, yeah, I was the candidate running for president, but it was not me. It was all of us. And I'm really very happy to tell you that out of that movement, not only did we elect some really wonderful people to the United States Congress, we have elected people to the state legislatures all over this country, to city councils, to school boards. What we have said to working people and to young people, you know what? You don't have to have a PhD in economics to get involved in politics. If you believe in justice, if you're prepared to stand up and fight, you can and must be involved. And I think many thousands of people have done that and are doing it right now. You talk in, in the book about ending all forms of bigotry, taking on racism. And you know we've seen, I suppose, a society in the US defined in lots of ways by racism, white supremacy. How important do you think as, as a movement, I mean, you, you see, we see now the squads, you've referred to them, AOC and the likes, where that kind of intersectionality is very important for younger people. I mean, do you think that's something now which maybe here we need to learn a bit more about your experience. I, you know, I can't speak to the UK. I just, I don't know enough about it. But I can tell you in my country, there's no way, no way that we're going to have the movement that we need to have unless all of us mm -hmm. are standing together, black and white and Latino and Native American and so forth. No way. And I will tell you this, um, and we talk about it in the book. I ran for president in 2016. We took on the entire political establishment, the economic establishment, the media establishment, the same thing in 2020. And we didn't win either election. But every single poll and exit poll showed that not only did we win the young people's vote 40 and under, whether it was black or white or Latino, whatever it was, we won by landslide victories. So to me, if people say, well, why are you optimistic? Why are you not depressed? You lost two elections. The answer is, the future of America is with our agenda, not the ruling class agenda. Just <laughs> just, just a couple of last questions before I want to bring the audience in. Um, I just wonder, do you have any general thoughts on the direction of the UK Labour Party? My wife and I are guests in your country. So diplomatic. But I will simply say this. Uh, I was deeply impressed by Jeremy Corbyn's ability to inspire young people to stand up and fight. And it's kind of incomprehensible in terms of what has happened to him. So that's about as far as I'll go. And just finally, before I bring people in, um, I went to Hungary a few years ago, and Hungary had a centre-right party that radicalised in power. It's a dictatorship, essentially, now, Hungary. And there was a political scientist who warned the US could be under right-wing dictatorship by 2030. I wondered how serious you think that threat is in terms of the future of American democracy and that strategy to drive back a far-right tide which wants to essentially overthrow US democracy as flawed as it may currently be. Well, it's, I mean, I think everybody knows. You know what happened um, on January 6th, several years ago. Uh, and you understand what Trumpism is about. Uh, Donald Trump is somebody who is propagating, as of today, a big, big lie. It's the big lie. We're familiar with big lies throughout history. And his big lie is that he really won the election and there was massive voter fraud. Big, big lie, but millions of people believe it. 
And there are polls out there which say that a significant number, minority, of people think that the only way they're going to get what they need is through violence. And we're seeing an uptick in all kinds of violence in the United States. So with leadership like Trump, who does not believe in the rule of law, who is a pathological liar, who is propagating a massively big lie, do I worry about the future of American democracy? Absolutely, I do. But when I talk about all of these economic issues, Owen, they are not unrelated to my concerns about democracy. Because the question we have to ask is, how does that happen? Mm. How do demagogues and liars and racists and homophobes, how do these people win support? And certainly one of the reasons, not the total reason, but one of the reasons is that in my country, and I'm sure in your country as well, there are many millions of working people who are struggling right now. They are in a lot of pain. And they turn on the television and they see some clown up there who does not have a clue about the lives that they are living, the pain that they are experiencing. And they look at that and they say, that's not for me. I don't know what these people are talking about. They have no clue about what my life is about, the struggles that I have to go through every single day. And then you have some strong guy coming in and he's prepared to take on uh, immigrants or he's prepared to take on people of color or he's prepared to take on gays and he's a really tough guy. And people say, yeah, I respect that. He's a tough guy. All right, let's go with that. So in this book, I'm hard on the Democrats mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I think to a large degree, and it's not the Republican ideology when you look at their policy platform. You know what it essentially comes down to? Huge tax breaks for billionaires, cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security and other important programs, and more money for the Defense Department. Truth is, most Americans, very strong majority of Americans, do not support that agenda. Mm -hmm. But they gain influence because they're playing on the resentment and the anger that people are feeling. And what our job is to say to people, and that's what this book is about, you have a right to be angry. You have a right to be angry when your standard of living is going down. And in America, if we don't change it, our younger generation will have a lower standard of living than their parents. You have a right to be angry that the planet we're going to be leaving, our kids and grandchildren, will likely become more unhabitable and unhealthy. You have a right to be angry. But if you are angry, take out your anger on the people who are responsible for the problems. Not just somebody because they're a different color skin than you are, or they came from a different country. So democracy, to my mind, the future of democracy, has everything to do with the ability of government to start responding to the legitimate concerns of ordinary working people. And if we don't do that, the frustration is going to build up. This has happened throughout history. It will happen again. So to me, it's not just economic justice we're fighting for. We, in fact, through economic justice, are fighting to preserve democracy. Amen.
Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, do press like and subscribe and do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84 and I will see you very soon. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.